0: Hello and thanks for tuning in. My name is Errol Parker and you're listening to the Batuta Advocate Radio Show, coming to you live from Baxter Boots Studios in downtown Batuta. And joining me as always is Clancy Overall. Yes, hello and thanks for tuning in. Now we've got an interesting
1: guest on the show this week. She's travelled all the way up here from New South Wales, which is her patch. She's a household name in a lot of undesirable households. Um, And she's here to talk to us
0: about some of the incredible things she's covered in her career. And her name is Kate McClymont. She's one of the best investigative journalists in the country. She's won multiple Walkley Awards, and she's been responsible for scoop after scoop in her illustrious career. From the Bulldog salary cap scandal in 2002 that changed the face of sports administration in the country to the revealing of the unbridled corruption in the New South Wales state political system, she's got some incredible stories, clients.
1: And don't worry, if you're one of the listeners uh, in town tuning in on Desert Rock FM, she's not up here doing any digging. She's actually visiting some family in the Channel country and stopped by to talk to us about all manner of things, including the recent raids by the AFP that shocked media
0: in this country. Yes, those raids, which hit our very own offices up here and looked an awful lot like an attack on democracy, and it's drawn fierce criticism from many in the Fourth Estate and around the country. We certainly weren't impressed by those jackboots kicking
1: down our doors here at the Tudor Advocate newsroom, and I had to snap my laptop and phone
0: clean in half. I've lost a lot of important documents, Al. And a lot of people are wondering if a certain jackboot enthusiast from Dixon had anything to do with the intimidation of journalists? Yes,
1: yes, yes. It's uh, not beyond the realms of possibility. Uh, So, Mr. Dutton, if you're listening, time to kick off the jackboots and throw them in the bin, mate, because... As our listeners will know by now, our good friends at Baxter can sort you out with some decent, honest Aussie boots that won't make you want to infringe on the freedom of the press.
0: Yes, and to our friends at the AFP, we'd also like to extend that invitation on behalf of Baxter. So you can swap your Jack boots out for a pair of Baxters. Uh, you can head down to their new flagship store in County Barnaby in Tamworth in New South Wales' New England district. Or as always, you can find them online at baxterfootwear.com.au. Now, we've got our guests patiently waiting, so we'll get on with the shot.
1: You're listening to Errol Parker and Clancy Overall, editors of the Batuta Advocate on Desert Rock FM. This week's guest, we don't usually do this. But this week's guest is almost an unconscious sequel to last week's guest, uh, ironically. Of course, last week's were uh, Kennery Bulldog's greats, Willie Mason and Rennie Matour. And this week's guest um, <laughs> actually got to know those names quite well uh, in her paper chase in 2002, I guess. Uh, Kate McClymont investigative journalist the investigative journalist investigative journalist thank you for joining us
2: oh thank you so much for having me and what a glorious morning it is in Batuta
1: yes it's um, it's it's getting to that time of the year where it's not obnoxiously hot now you're not actually here doing any investigative work thankfully for our town even though we do have the triple C out here quite a bit talking to Councillor Keith Carton about different uh, you know housing development uh, contracts and, and the like. But uh, you do get around the country a fair bit. It's not just um, you know that corrupt harbour city of Sydney. You actually get to see a fair bit of the country. Like, Are, are there hot spots you find across
2: the country? Well, or? I remember once um, going to Griffith, mm-hmm. which still has the um, unsavoury reputation as the mafia capital of mm-hmm. the world. Anyway, I had just checked into the glorious Ocono Motor Inn. And I literally put my bed, my bag on the chenille bedspread when my phone rang and it was one of my mafia contacts from mm-hmm. Sydney who said, I hear you're in Griffith. <laughs> I thought, I've been here like 10 minutes. Really? And they knew that I was in Griffith.
1: What, in 10 minutes rolling into town and checking into yeah. a motel? Yes. So th- do you find that there's eyes everywhere?
2: Well, I don't know. I just don't know how... They knew that. I don't know whether it was like, was it a car rental? Mm -hmm. Was it checking in at the, I mean, I did have a reservation at the motel. I, I don't know, but it was kind of unnerving. But then on other occasions, um, I often take my children, I used to take my children with me because I thought they would be very good ploys. And I used to make them take the photos for me. So I remember going to, a, <laughs>
3: remember
2: going to, a, um, this was another, it was a, a big mafia meeting at a restaurant in, God, I think it was Canterbury. And um, I told my children that we were going for pizza. And, you know, after driving for about 45 minutes, they said, well, you know when are we going to get here? Anyway, so I said, now, you take photos. Now, see those men over there. Just try and get them in the background. Mm-hmm. And I had my sister-in-law with me and she said, but what if they see us? I said, they won't suspect two women with children. Yeah. So we got some very good photos, all taken by the, you know, the 10-year-olds. <laughs>
1: <laughs> wow. So it's a family affair.
2: Oh, absolutely.
1: You could have gone into anything by the sounds of it. You could have maybe been a great politician. We have done our research on you. We've kind of played the Kate McClymont role and (laughs) found stories about you busking in King's Cross.
2: (laughs) Oh, look, yes, this is when I was a university student and I have absolutely no ability to sing, Mm -hmm. dance, do any kind of artistic interpretation, but I can talk. So uh, my busking booth was... Questions answered, 40 cents. Arguments, 50 cents. And verbal abuse, a dollar. And I used to make about $17 an hour and that was, you know, like 30 years ago. So mm. it was it was a nice little a earner price. on a Saturday night. Much better yes. than
1: a hospitality gig, I oh, guess. Oh, much better. All. Now – Verbal abuse, was that you, that people paid you to abuse them?
3: Or I get, they, they get to abuse you? No, or, no, no.
2: certainly not. <laughs> <laughs> that would be an argument and I'd have to pay extra. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, no, what would happen was invariably men would come along and pay me a dollar to abuse their girlfriends. All right. So I would abuse the girlfriend for having such shockingly poor taste in a boyfriend All right. that he could possibly do this. But I mean, how low is that? Mm. But when people did want to, you know, put their two cents worth in, I'd say, look, yep. if, if you want to argue about it, you have to put in 50 cents. So, you know, you could earn a bit on the side, so to speak.
0: So, so that was King's Cross in the Yes. Like right back in the day. Pre lockouts,
2: Porky's, Porky's love yeah. machine, the barter being. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. So I guess it's changed a bit since then, hasn't it? I mean, like, oh um, look, it's dead. Do mm. you ever walk through it now and just kind of wish it was back to?
2: Oh, absolutely. How it
0: was, or is it nice? Oh, and I, clean, remember, um, and I remember.
2: I remember going to meet contacts in King's Cross, and you'd go to the cafes, and. You'd go to put sugar in your coffee, and you'd notice the sugar was falling through because they drilled holes in their teaspoons so people couldn't steal them to use them
3: <laughs> to shoot, shoot up. up. All right. So
2: yeah. So it was.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's intense. That's a that's a that was, wow.
2: And I, I yes, I remember going supposedly undercover to the um, the gambling schools, which were illegal at the time, run by crime figures, mm-hmm. and you know in parliament they'd say there is there's no such thing as these things and yeah. then i managed to persuade the herald to give me 20 bucks expenses to go <laughs> and, and gamble yeah. you know in the um you know the the two up schools that were All there right. so look a blind eye was turned completely to illegality but one of the other things when i first started at the herald This is when the Herald had a massive empire Mm -hmm. and we had the Northern Herald and we had the Eastern Herald, which was a weekly insert into the main paper. Anyway, so I was given the job. I had to be the society reporter (laughs) for the Eastern Herald, which was so dire because, you know, the same week seeing the same people, you know, know, air kissing at functions. So I decided that, look, we needed to get a little bit further afield. So – one night we went to the, I think it was the Wednesday night dogs at Wenty Park. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. And that's where, you know, the, the fashion in the fields was women wearing velour matching tracky dacks at the dogs, at the dogs <laughs> and the men had their best, you know, flanny shirts on. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, there was this one man there who had this sort of like dyed black hair all greased back and, and, and a suit at the dogs.
3: Mm-hmm. Anyway, that's that's made
2: him stand out. So I sort of followed him and I could see that he was winning all the time. So I started doing what he was doing. And it turned out he was Rex Jackson, Rex Buckets Jackson, the minister for racing. (laughs) And then as minister for prisons... He went to jail for accepting bribes to get prisoners out of jail early. So here he was, obviously, getting tips on the yeah. rigged races at the Wednesday night Wenty Park Dogs.
0: So he obviously went down to Cooma. Uh, the,
2: uh I think he was in Barremer, actually.
0: Right. Yeah, which is now closed, isn't it? Yes. Is that, he was, yeah.
2: in fact, he was well known for making clocks while in Barremer <laughs> oh, jail. Really? You could get a bucket clock, <laughs> handcrafted <laughs> by the former prisons minister.
1: There wasn't really a care in the world then for a racing minister to be sitting at Wenny Park no. all evening, oh, winning not. every bet he put no. on. Is that kind of how you fell into investigative journalism? Yeah, just like this is too easy.
2: Well, then a couple of weeks <laughs> later, I got my first death threat. All right, um,
3: because
2: huh. I decided that um, it would be good. There was a one of the major organised figures at the time was a guy called George Freeman, and um, there was a, a very famous photo taken in the member stand at the races with George Freeman, uh, Dr Nick Paltos who was um, head of emergency at Sydney Hospital, and Murray Farquhar, the chief stipendary magistrate, um, both of whom, the latter two, both went to jail <laughs> for yeah. corruption in the end. But um, he was this George Freeman guy. Anyway, his, his his wife's sister was getting married at King Copple Rose Bay, so that fell in the, the ballywick of um, the social writer at the Eastern Herald. So we went along to the wedding and we took photos and I thought that I'd made a very witty joke about how the bridesmaids were wearing sequins since that was the closest fashion accessory you could get to armour plating (laughs) (laughs) in the bridal party. And um, we also had a photo because George had come to the wedding with his bodyguard who was this gigantic lug of a man and at the time uh, on tv was a, a famous british comedy series called minder which was about a small time crim and his minder Tell Hmm. Terry's nickname was anyway, and the theme song was "I Could Be So Good for You." Anyhow, so the caption was George and his thug, and underneath (laughs) was "I Could Be So Good for You." Anyway, George didn't find this at all funny, and (laughs) I started getting death threats at my house. I couldn't believe
3: it from From the social.
2: Yes, (laughs) from it was the social writer, the social writer on the Eastern Herald, was getting death threats. (laughs) From George. George didn't ring himself. Yeah. People would ring up and say, George is not happy. You know, George is this, George is that.
1: In that moment, do you feel like maybe the biggest identity in, in uh, Sydney's organised crime kind of unwittingly invented Kate McIvor?
3: <laughs> sort of, yes, oh, yeah. exactly, <laughs>
1: exactly. And then you made life hard for his colleagues for, no, for years and years after the, that. The
2: funny thing was because of my... Um, column as the social writer i got a job at the national times which was the big investigative paper and then it became the times on sunday and then it closed um but yes so funnily enough my job as the society of all things you know (laughs) eastern suburbs because i managed to do it turn it into something else so I, i didn't become the gossip writer i moved on to something else which was fun
1: so you you haven't been specifically new south wales based your whole career in our research we yeah. found you were with four corners were you involved in the moonlight state investigations or was I, that
2: the moonlight state mm. went to air i think about 3 weeks after i started there right. and i literally thought i had died and gone to heaven really it was, well, I mean, this was the most extraordinary piece of television. Chris Masters had uncovered, you know, just vast corruption within not just the hierarchy of the police, but also with support of the police minister Mm -hmm. and politicians. And the interesting thing about that was that, um, you know, life can be serendipitous in many ways. And when that program went to air joe bajelki peterson the premier was out of the country so the deputy ordered
3: yeah a,
2: a, a royal commission if yeah. joe had been there he would have just killed yeah he would have fed the chooks yeah. he, he would have he fed, fed the chooks, the chooks yeah. so no i did um it
1: was a perfect storm
2: it was a perfect storm yeah. so anyway as i was saying i just thought this was wonderful so i did quite a lot of Stories with Paul Barry, yep. and we did Alan Bond. I remember going to Perth and doing a guy called um, Laurie Connell, last resort Laurie, who ended up in jail for, oh, I think it was, I can't remember what business atrocity he had done. But when we went over there, we were looking at, you know, one of my favorite areas, which is corruption on the racetrack. Mm. And what we were looking at in that case was that there was this minor race in Bunbury, which is south of Perth. Yeah. And Laurie Connell had paid the jockey to basically give out money during the race. So it's sort of like, you know, you're racing through, you know, five thousand to move aside, five you know, Offer, actually yeah. offering money to jockeys while the race is going on. So if you're blocked, <laughs> you're yelling out, you know. What? Anyway, it wasn't going well, so he sort of accidentally fell off. Right. <laughs> so Danny Hobby, and then not only did he fall off Danny Hobby, the jockey, he disappeared because the stewards were onto him and Laurie Connell paid for him to do around the world Sightseeing trip as a jockey.
1: All oh, right. right. Okay. oh,
2: gee, those days were fun. They were really fun. Except our, our car did get broken into, and we did get threatened. But apart from that, it was fun.
1: <laughs> Who do you find would be in, if there was any occupation that you think is the most blatantly corrupt or dodgy? Is it what would it be? Would it be jockeys? Would it be trainers? Would it? Or, I mean, there's a lot of accountants. I imagine you've kind of oh, made look, friends it's,
2: with. The thing that astonishes me is that. There is the same group of people who do it. There's the same lawyers. Mm -hmm. There's the same accountants. Jockeys, as you mentioned, no, not all of them, but a lot of them are pretty spivvy. (laughs) And I remember um, Jim Cassidy once um, spat on my back and said that I was a fucking bitch and I've ruined his life. That was only because he was caught, you know, basically on the take. take. (laughs) But I love it the way it's always – it's always – Our fault.
1: Yeah. You've kind of alluded to a few death threats in your career. You are also now at a point where you can gauge the seriousness and
2: look, I, I always I always take to heart that one of my good sources in the police said to me, you know, look don't worry about the death threats you get. They're the least of your concerns. Yeah. It's the ones that don't threaten yeah. are the ones that you really have to worry about. And, look, my view is, is that… That's vague. I, no, no <laughs> it is because, I mean, if how do you know? But it, my view is is that if somebody really wanted to kill you, mm-hmm. they could.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: I mean, it's, it's not really that hard.
0: It's not really.
2: So I just think, why worry? Mm. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and I think it would be very bad for business… Um, it
0: would they, be. Yeah.
2: And um, the worst thing, though, uh, is defamation threats yeah. are yeah. so much worse than death threats.
0: Yeah. Well, they're expensive, as we've seen, you know, yeah. in recent months.
2: Have you guys we've ever seen, had uh, one?
0: Uh, I've had a few. Yes and no. But yeah, but
1: cease and desist <laughs> type scenarios. Um, nothing ever serious, I guess. Yeah, cause Can I ask I get, who we'll, from? Uh, Cricket Australia, uh, sports bet.
0: Uh, yeah well there's Jared Haynes people there's, there's, <laughs> I think that uh that one thing that does protect us in that instance is that we don't have anything. Mm. Yeah. Other than
1: Obviously the Studio
0: Booth you're sitting in right
1: now. Oh, like, we could I, end up I can see in the you court. I can
2: see you have stolen John Laws' golden microphone here. <laughs> I mean, and I, I feel privileged as the guest to be using this sparkling gold microphone.
1: We'd have to represent ourselves. I'll we'll get a Dennis Denuto-type character in, yeah. in a defamation it's like, suit. That'd it's be, like, how much... How better better
2: call Saul. <laughs>
3: yeah.
0: Someone with a degree from the University of American Samoa. <laughs> so uh, you've obviously uh, experienced quite an uh, important time Especially in investigative journalism where we've seen a shift away from a paper trail into an online type trail. And we've seen um, at News Corp now, uh, they've started to sack a lot of their older journalists who don't know how to use a computer. I think
2: everyone knows how to use a computer.
0: Well, yeah, well...
2: Except for Kenneth Hayne, the head of the Royal Commission, he didn't.
0: We've seen that News Corp is starting to get rid of all their traditional print journalists. How have you stayed ahead of the bell curve? What skills have you got that they don't?
2: I think one of the best things about the job is learning how to do new things. Yeah. Like I love doing um you know learning how to do geolocation like No
1: yeah, right. <laughs> You're you know right on this. Thing- yeah. no I,
2: I love it yeah. and I I just think all the things that you know that the data mining that you can do and the things that you can find out I went to see All the President's Men last year, you know, in the wake of the, um, you know, the, the Mueller inquiry. And, of course, that was about the Watergate scandal. And that that film was made, um, I think it might have been in the, was it in the early 80s or the late 70s? Anyway, not, not long after Nixon, the whole, you know, Nixon-Watergate thing had happened. And what it reminded me of was that the major tool of an investigative journalist was the white pages of the phone book. And you forget how much uh, information is now available. I remember in the Four Corners office, we used to have a whole cupboard of white pages from all around Australia and that's how you would find people. You would ring up every single person with that name because everyone had their phone number listed. And not only did they have their phone number listed, their address was listed with it. So in some ways it was much easier to find people because everyone was in the white pages. But even then, if you wanted to find out what directorships people had of a company, like if they were hiding their assets through the companies, you had to know the name of the company. And you think, how ridiculous is that? How do I know And the only time I ever got lucky with that was you had to go down, you had to go in person down to the, um, you know, Australian Securities Commission, as it was then known, and you had to fill out the form. And there was this one union boss that um, was supposedly on the take. And someone said, Oh, look, his greatest. Love in his life is his greyhounds, so I got a list of all his greyhounds <laughs> and went down to company's house. And I remember that his champion greyhound Pied City yeah. was the one that was the name of the company. So right, right. So I did get lucky once. Oh, you just looked
1: up the name of his greyhounds? All of them. <laughs> yeah. And there was <laughs> what one. What a tragic. Name I know. But pretend <laughs> now,
2: and to think that now you can sit, like you can sit at your desk. And do all these things. And I think we don't get out of our office as often enough as we used to because everything is at your fingertips. Mm -hmm. But it's incredibly hard for freelancers to do this because every company search costs about $26. And, like, I can spend $300 in an afternoon just looking – at connections you need, you need and looking, you do yeah. need resources.
1: Yeah. yeah, is that a interesting thing now you're seeing with you know stripping down of news publications? Of course, uh, Fairfax, the, who you've written with most of your print career, has yeah. uh, merged with Channel Nine. Do you feel like that's they're still putting an emphasis and prioritising what you do?
2: Look, absolutely, and I think
1: not. Not just your employer, no, no, but across no, I, the board.
2: Yeah. No, but I think a lot of the mastheads have realised that investigative journalism, those pieces that take longer to get, bring trust to the paper and bring, I just think, an extra feeling that they're doing something worthwhile. So, and of course, you need people to do the daily news because you need those pages to be filled. But I think that they're really um, intent on investing money in investigative journalism because it pays off in the long run.
0: Well, it's been about a year since the merger. Uh, between Fairfax and Nine. It's been longer than a year since the Fairfax strikes. How has the job changed in the merger?
2: Absolutely not at all. Mm -hmm. Right. Apart from changing the name, it's fairly much business as usual. We might see a difference when we're actually in the same building because the Fairfax titles are all going to be housed in North Sydney. I think this is in 2020. So it'll be interesting to see whether that makes a change. Sharing an office
1: with Ben Fordham. Yeah, exactly. <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, um, but look, having said that, we are on the same floor as the Finn Review. Yep. And, you know, the Sun Herald. And there's always competition um and separation between mm-hmm. the titles. So I think if we've lived happily on the same floor, yep. Um, I don't see how it will be any different. And also I just think the synergies between television and print are different. So I would imagine that we'd still keep going much as we are now. You do yeah. your thing. They do yeah. their thing.
1: Now – a lot of people that you've reported on have died over the years. I mean, <laughs> we were saying, <laughs> like, kill yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, well, it's d-
0: kill or be killed. Yeah. It's
1: a, they've died, either died as a result of their trade, or uh, you know, you're only a young gun when uh, yeah. Moonlight State happened. Now that a lot of those people are dead, can you say things about them? Like, for example, if I would ask you right now, if you think Sir Joe was in on the joke?
2: Oh, go absolutely.
1: Yeah? yeah. Do you reckon, Sir? So, so, do you reckon most of that? Uh, Sir Joe government would have known what was happening with the syndication and the money and the bribes.
2: Look, I don't know. Um, I don't know how widespread it was known because mm-hmm. the more people know, the more they put out their hand. Mm-hmm. So often, it's advisable to keep those things close so you don't have to share the proceeds. And of course, the more the more people know, the more chance there is of it all coming undone. Mm-hmm. So you do try to keep those things. Into a you know little controlled entity.
1: Now, yeah, obviously the defamation suits are a big, a big worry for someone in, in your kind of trade. They don't really exist when someone dies, and there's a lot of people that died with a lot of secrets uh, across politics in this country, business and politics. What about say, is there anyone you can spill the beans on? Anyone? What about Neville Rand? What can you tell us about him?
2: Oh, don't get me started. <laughs> 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 oh. One of the things that I found most interesting about Neville Rand was the fact that um, he managed to make appointed to police commissioner who was little more than a police constable. Mm -hmm. You know, he might have been inspector and the next thing we know is that Merv is the police commissioner. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Didn't go too well from there.
1: Was Merv a bellman boy too? because bowman boys don't, don't cry. cry. No,
2: I can't remember whether he was a Balmain boy, but there were interesting interesting times. And there were other really interesting things too about the um, Lionel Murphy, who was the Attorney General and was then appointed to the High Court. And, of course, there were those famous, what became known as the age tapes, were the police phone taps of organised crime figures. And they found there was this complete racket between lawyers and politicians and organised crime figures that was just going on. And (laughs) Neville Ram wasn't on those phone taps, but he was referred to them indirectly, and that's where he got his nickname Nifty. Yeah, right. Because that was what he was referred to was Nifty Nev. So, you know, he, he knew people who were on that tape and there were references made about him. Not specifically that he was, you know, taking money, but no, just had interesting associations.
0: Well, we have seen on a state level uh, how effective all organisations like the Triple C and ICAC can be. Do you think we'll ever see a federal ICAC, or is that a swamp that's just no? Too I think
2: I think that we will see um, a federal ICAC as long as it's not the ludicrous model that the coalition currently have proposed.
3: Right. No, no, I mean,
2: no, it's, it's silly. It's a Oh Well, okay, why would you have an inquiry that has no public hearings <laughs> and the public can't even make a complaint? So it's only people in the department who can make a complaint and then they will only make a finding once they've got to the end of it. I mean, that's all behind closed doors. And, I mean, the thing about... You know, corruption is that famous old saying that the best disinfectant against corruption is sunlight. Yeah. And I think a lot of people don't understand about the New South Wales Independent Commission Against Corruption. You know, um, a lot of the coalition claim it's a star chamber. In fact, what happens is that they have private hearings beforehand to ascertain what they're likely to find, what people are going to say, so it's only after that process has been gone through that they then go to a public hearing. So they already know what's going to be there. Yeah. So I think for people to say that you know all it does is ruin people's reputations, that is just <laughs> not true.
1: Yeah. Anti-corruption bodies tend to have a bit of a process. You know, Australia loves a royal commission, and it seems to be the only way to hold power to account outside of the work you do. But uh, even the work you do now is being tested. Can you tell us as a journalist, are these AFP raids as scary as people are putting out there? Does it feel like they're trying to turn the newspapers of this country into toothless tigers as well?
2: Look, it's hard to know what they're trying to do, because the federal police or the New South Wales police or any police... Will not investigate unless there's a complainant. I mean, that's leaving aside things like, you know, murder or a, a crime such as that. For instance, if we do a story on, you know, sexual assaults or something like that, unless one of the people we write about goes to the police, the police aren't going to investigate just because we wrote a story. Mm-hmm. And it's the same with these. Someone has had to complain to the police in order to do an investigation. Now, in some cases, it appears that Departmental Chief Mike Peluso was the one who complained, Mm -hmm. but they don't operate in isolation. I just think it's really a little bit beyond belief for the government to say, we didn't know. Now, they might not have known the specifics of the raid, But to claim they didn't know that investigation was going on, I just find that a little bit hard to take. But I don't know who was doing public relations on behalf of the federal police. Because you have to think that they are just doing their job. They are enforcing the law. It's up to governments to change the law. But to do consecutive raids on the two biggest media outlets in the country, you know, News Corp owns 70% of the newspapers in Australia and the ABC as well. Like to do those in separate days just provided a a uniting front on behalf of the media because I wonder – if the ABC had just been raided, raided, so I don't know whether news would have been quite so vocal. But um,
1: socialists get raided every yeah. now and
2: then. <laughs> so I do think it was kind of a reverse masterstroke yeah. that the AFP did them in consecutive yeah. days.
1: Yeah. You, you think that was kind of let's like they were taking into account political spectrums?
2: No, look, no, it could more have been just um, okay. Our Two digital guys who are good at downloading, they're available on these two days. It could be Mm
3: -hmm. as
2: simple as that. Often when you think that there's a major conspiracy, there actually isn't. But um, I just think it was very ill-thought-out on their part to do these, you know, together.
1: When do you think was the scariest time in your career to be a journalist?
2: Um. Oh, gee, I don't know. I, I do remember once um, the New South Wales police were coming to raid me <laughs> and they, they were rung up. They had to ring up from downstairs to get through security. And so then I just put all the files on somebody else's desk. So, <laughs> so there was, was nothing there. Um, look, I don't know. It, oh, no.
3: Just oh, exactly. move it over. Yeah, just, exactly. Just move it Where
2: are over. the files? Where are the files? Oh, I don't know. I think defamation-wise, it has never been as bad as it is now. I mean, it is just – I've just had – I mean, I started off this year with five defamation cases, and I'm down now I think just to two. One person who was suing – um, for suggesting he was corrupt was then at the centre of a corruption inquiry by ICAC. So that right. was, yes, yeah,
3: gone. No,
1: okay. <laughs> so, and then... <laughs> so putting you on your toes, you've got to prove it quicker.
2: <laughs> I know, it is. But, and the thing is, is that in America, if you're a public person and you you can sue for defamation, but you have to prove that the publication or the journalist was malicious in that they not only were they wrong, but they knew that they were wrong and they were malicious mm-hmm. in the way that they went about it. Here it's the reverse. Yeah, And, you know, often when you do a story, I have to think to myself, okay, if I get sued, who among all my sources will step up and give evidence? And sometimes your sources, it would ruin their career mm-hmm. if yeah. they were outed. So yeah. – you know, if you get sued, they're not going to stand up. So, how do you prove what you're saying if your sources
3: mm.
2: won't they're come forward? It's, yeah. Yes, I, it's really difficult.
0: I suppose the first instance, like the one that really opened the floodgates here, would be hockey. You know, that was the Herald, too, where they said, you know, it's the treasurer for sale.
2: But in fact, what was interesting about that was. Um, I think that turned out to be not a good move by him. In that, he was successful, and I think got a two hundred and fifty thousand dollar payout on what do you call it? The billboard, the mm. the um, the thing that leans against the the wall at the newsagent. Oh um, yeah, um, um, yeah,
0: the, the pull up. I know what you're talking about. Yes, yeah. whatever that. Yeah. The promo at yeah, yeah, the yeah. at
2: the newsagents, and also on a tweet.
3: yeah. yeah
2: that said, as you said, treasurer for sale. But in actual fact, he lost the rest of the case, which was the actual content of the story, which explained where this money came from. And because he lost that, he had to pay Fairfax's costs. Yeah. So, in fact, he was seriously... (laughs) Well, no, I don't... Actually, good question whether the government had... Is it I think, well or? then, if that was the case, did he have to give the two hundred and fifty thousand he won back to the taxpayer? <laughs> yeah. But anyway, look, he was um, he was seriously out of pocket yeah. Yeah. in that case in in court costs.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah, it is frustrating that you can just do that in Australia. Do you think um, you know this is still ongoing? But do you think that Jeffrey Rush one wouldn't have, wouldn't have stood up in America?
2: Look, I I don't know. Um, it might have been good if the if the Telegraph had not beaten it up. Yeah, I mean that their front page was fantastic. You know, King Lear it was stunning, but if they <laughs> had just done, but it, it was a slender story, and yep. if they had just put the story on page nine, you know, complaint yep. received by Sydney Theatre Company. Yep. I think that they could have um, got away with it. But I just think that they got caught up in the whole Me yep. Too thing and yep. Hadn't, yep. hadn't done they wanted to get the work. Their, they
1: wanted to get their drop. They wanted yeah. their big fish. Yeah. yeah. Now, um, you've covered a lot of things in your career. There was, as we mentioned, Canterbury Bulldogs. Obed. Uh Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you spent a lot of time out in that part of Sydney anyway, <laughs> don't you? Obed, you stumbled across.
2: It stumbled across me, yeah, really. Yeah. Oh, no, it was just that in – Funnily enough, in 1999, two guys from Balgala in um, Sydney's northern suburbs contacted me and said that that had these this visit by these um, two Obeid boys saying, you know, could they have their contract? They had a contract. These people had a contract to manufacture street poles for the city of Sydney and the Obedes wanted the contract. Mm-hmm. And they said, oh, we'll give you the Olympic contract. And they said, well, well, "How are you going to do that?" And they said, "Our father is Eddie Obeid." So they dropped that, and in their they first said, <laughs> uh, right. "They said, never heard of him." <laughs> and quite frankly, I'd vaguely heard of him, but he was a backbencher. Who gives the
1: state government? Yeah. I
2: know. So it was. <laughs> so I did the story, and then more information started coming through, and then I basically spent the rest of my career. Looking at poor Eddie, and in fact, I remember his wife once saying to a whole lot of journalists, "What have we ever done to that woman? What have we ever done to her that she keeps writing about us?" But and again, it's-, it's always it's always your fault.
1: Yeah, he, yeah. I mean, he was he was again very very. Flagrant, well, it was very- him and Ian McDonald too? Like, yeah.
2: He- Look, can I just say that um, both Eddie and Ian are facing trial. It's due to start in July. So, I think it's probably better if we um, yeah. don't talk too much mm-hmm. about them, just in case any prospective yeah, for sure. juror <laughs> might be listening. <laughs> yeah. Of course. Good call.
1: Good call. We'll move on. Now, Even though
2: they are my favourite people. <laughs>
1: <laughs> there, there was just uh, one thing here that I thought was interesting on the first week he bought a property.
2: Yeah. No, no. Parliament. He, he No, he, I think he, this was, he bought a property in Clavelli, and he bought, brought, I think he bought that on, oh, I don't know, like the Tuesday, and then on the Wednesday he's sworn into Parliament, and then he sells it, having owned it for one day, for double the price, and he sold it to the housing department.
0: In his own name. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
3: That's good.
0: Oh,
1: your job sounds very funny at times. Is it? Do, you ever, do you ever stumble across anything and laugh?
2: So much, like all the time. All I mean, I, I mean, I think that's a thing I love about the job is that there's so much humour in it. And I've just, um, I've just finished doing a book on the murder of Michael McGurk. I know that doesn't sound funny, but the bungling efforts those guys went to to get a hitman were just so ridiculous. And in fact, they, um, so this guy called Hassafetli, who was supposedly... He was the one that actually did the murder in the end only because he couldn't find anyone to do right. it. But he gave he gave $15,000 to some, you know, drug-addled person who just got out of jail for kidnapping. And um, that was to get two handguns. You know, the, the person who'd sold him the gun said, oh, I'm so sorry, but um, they were just about to be delivered by my courier... But the police were chasing her, so she had to throw them out the window. I'm really sorry. Oh, That's right.
1: Fifteen grand That's down. fifteen
2: grand. Then he, you know, pays more for this and more for that. And in fact, the the, the drug-addled loser used the money as a deposit on a house. So then he turns around and um, and then his friend Lucky Gattilari says to um because he's got a, and there's always a you know more corrupt deals going on the side. So he said to um one of the Aboriginal elders that he had a corrupt deal going on with, he said, look, surely you must know an Aboriginal who's terminally ill and about to die and who would like to do a hit. And you think, so you want a dying Aboriginal <laughs> to be a murderer. <laughs> so and they're going to cark it and get away. Oh. And then, <laughs> you know. Niche. That's oh a shit no, man. <laughs> and then Sifetli himself. So in the end, he actually did do the murder. And I think having seen so many movies, gets back to his um, house in southwestern Sydney, you know, lights a fire, puts all the clothes in there, burns them, puts the phone in and then realises that the murder money is in the back pocket. Oh. So then he burns his hands trying to get his clothes back out of the What's bin. The money like, he was paid yeah. to do it.
3: Yeah. <laughs> he's, oh, he's <laughs>
2: good. And you just think, oh, <laughs> no. So you do have, you know, like – there are...
0: Yeah, there are people out
2: there. There are people out there. And I mean, Salim Mahaja. what's mm. not to love
0: yeah. about... Well, the media just, just gives him so much oxygen. He he needs oh, yeah. his own reality TV show,
1: to be honest. I think it would be a good place to keep him, keep an eye on everything Salim's doing, oh, keeping my. up with the Mahajas. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good name. Now, when we talk about that corruption of Sir Joe era Queensland, that was kind of more of a Bush thing when he kind of had all these cowboys and this new Queensland kind of, uh, and a lot of it came from the bush. You know, you had those Hinds, and you had those King Arroy, Sir Joe, and you had people from all around the place. In New South Wales, it feels like it's a Sydney thing. Is there something about Sydney? You know, it's always been, John Birmingham wrote in that book, Leviathan, where it's kind of like, it's just this city. There's something from the start to like, from settlement to where we're at now, it's always been... Ex rugby league players involved, ex cops involved, cafe owner from Bondi's involved. And
3: it's just
2: Look, I think it it's that it's it's like that because there's money to be made and yep. lots of it. You know, the reason why it's been Sydney for so long is about our obsession with property and getting ahead and um that's where the money is to be made. And you know, I think that the most corrupt institution is local government. Oh, hell because,
3: yeah. Uh, uh,
2: you know, like you can buy, yeah. uh, you know, give somebody a second-hand Honda Civic and yeah. get four extra, yeah. you know, stories on your building. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's where they really need yeah. to stamp out yeah. the well, corruption.
0: Who poisoned this tree? Oh, yeah. no
2: one oh, knows. Yeah. No, funny that. <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> it does go to the top sometimes. Do you think there's a lot of blinkers put on in, in – for example, when you look at something like uh, current New South Wales government or the current Queensland government, when you look, when you look at people who hold power to account over the years, there's always a backstory. I'm not sure if you grew up in a kind of congregation that was always, you know, Bob Hawke style. You know, if you I were
2: on a farm outside of Orange, yeah. <laughs> no.
1: where, where's your moral compass set? Like, how do you know? Because there's stuff we see in the news every day, and sometimes journalists don't even report on it. Sometimes it's just released by government agencies. You're looking at kind of. Peter Dutton with the childcare stuff, or you're looking at Sam Dastyari with the China stuff. When do you decide it's time to actually report on Because there's so much grey, in the even in the very well, top.
2: It's, and it's not, too, that there's so much grey. There is, like, so much going on. And we are inundated with people, with information, with stories, with examples. And, you know, sometimes you feel really bad saying, look, I'm sorry, I just can't mm-hmm. do that and i think you do you develop a feel for what's might be good but sometimes there's just not the, the evidence there. you know it's there but how are you going to prove it mm-hmm. or someone tells you something and they say i know for a fact that x has taken money and they probably do know for a fact but that's not enough mm-hmm. like We almost have to do things to the standard that, well, again, if you're sued, it will stand up. So you have to prove on the balance of probabilities that what you're saying is true and you have to have supporting documents Mm -hmm. or you have to have somebody prepared to go into the witness box. I think people think we just run things, you know, willy-nilly without having gone through everything But, you know, on the eve of, you know, running a major story, you don't feel elation. You just feel absolutely ill. You know, have Mm -hmm. I got everything? Have I checked everything? Yeah. Because the stakes are really high and, you know, you don't want to be in a defamation
3: suit.
1: So what you're saying is there's no – you're not out to get anyone. There's no character assassination. It's just when you're overwhelmed with stuff about – Something yeah. you've got to write on it.
2: Well, so sometimes you might just have a snippet of a story and that's enough to mm. do something. And it's funny how you can do a single story. Like I did a story back in 2006 on this um, fraudster whose name was Matt Simons who had fleeced Kambala parents of a total of $5 million. Anyway, just so… Bounce
1: between the, uh, just bounce between the… Families at a private school. Yeah.
2: Well, no, he'd he'd got money from them, you know, supposedly to do these investments. And then um, earlier this year I got contacted by a victim and I managed – so he's out of jail and I managed to find another six victims. (laughs) So he's doing it. He's back. He's back. (laughs) (laughs) And it's funny how – and I think the internet also makes it – easier for people to contact you they might yeah. google the yeah. name of somebody and they'll see that you have written something about yeah. that person yeah. before so it's surprising yeah. how many um, repeat business you get
1: <laughs> well now with the digital footprint now you you're saying it's just it's easier than ever to yeah. kind of follow follow people around mm.
2: but also it's easier for us to find out interstate whether you know because everything's on the line now you can yeah. see whether they've been doing things you yeah. know in downtown batuta or yeah. you know somewhere yeah. else
0: yeah 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 so just quickly before we go kate there's probably a lot of young journalism grads or young sort of journalists who are looking to get into you know your line of work what advice would you have to them
2: it's it requires a certain amount of patience and you can't expect to just to have it all in your lap, it's really hard work. And also, I think it takes a while to build up, you know, both contacts and respect. Like, I think one of the most important things I tell people is just the importance of behaving ethically. Like, it doesn't matter if somebody is a criminal or a spiv in a shiny suit. If you give your word about something, or if they say something is off the record, you do have to respect them and behave ethically. And, you know, once you do that, I think that can be really helpful in the long run because people know that you are trustworthy and it's a really important thing in an age where, you know, people are willing to cut corners or, you know, do things to get ahead. It just means that sometimes those stories that you think might be there aren't there. And you just have to keep going. It's, it's difficult and it's a hard road. And also a lot of young journalists, um, it's sort of like byline deprivation. Like mm-hmm. what I do is I might not have my byline in the paper every day. And for a lot of young journalists, that's a dreadful thing. Yeah. And the worst thing you can ever say to an investigative journalist is, do you still work there? Or have you been on leave when you haven't? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because you've been working on something.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: So there are all those things to to balance, really. Yeah. But also, and it takes a while to build up contacts.
1: Well, thank you for joining us. We could we could go on for hours and hours. You've written a lot of articles. You've written a lot of books. Uh, we look forward to this next one, actually. I look forward to hearing the story of McGurk and, and Galatari and Medich.
2: Yeah, Gadalari. 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 Sadly, his name, Lucky his Gadilari. real name was... Fortunato.
1: Oh,
0: really? <laughs> oh, that's why he got his name. Isn't it? Yeah. Uh, yes. like, oh, I thought he. Well, well he's obviously not like. Him. Yeah, yeah.
1: No,
2: he's Unfortunato. An, by
0: name only. It's an ironic nickname.
1: Isn't it? <laughs> we look forward to reading that, and we look forward to anything else you've got in the works. Kaye McClymont, thank you for joining us.
2: Oh, thanks so much for having me. It was great. <laughs>